The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. Move this to something. There we go. All right. And we're live. It is Tuesday, October 5th, 2021, 4.59 p.m. We actually started half a minute early today, which I don't know that that has ever happened before. Um, uh, there were Facebook hearings featuring the Facebook whistleblower today. So before we get into the uh, meat of the show, uh, KK, I assume you have been uh, following them. Uh, what happened? And um, uh, give us the, like, the monologue on the Facebook hearings. This is um, completely improvised. Kate had no idea I was going to tell her to do that. I'm used to it at this point that you just call, cold calling me like <laughs> in the middle of, um, and I don't want to take too much time away from Fiona because um, I have read a couple of the reviews of your book. They're outstanding. And so I'm very, I'm really, um, I'm really looking forward to it um, really quickly. So Francis Haugen, who's the uh, whistleblower who leaked the documents to Congress and before that to the Wall Street Journal's Jeffrey Hurwitz um, testified in Congress today and uh, basically um, on, you know, what Facebook knew and when they knew it and what, what to do going forward. I think that it had a remarkable amount of like take up, like, I don't know what else to say. Like people like really liked her, found her frank and compelling, and also liked the level in which she was able to explain things like the algorithm or things like how the ad, like the ad capitalism like works in the system um, and kind of had concrete solutions. And I just want to say that this is what happens when you invite people who are the founder of companies that have 10,000 people in them that are all doing various things and ask them really specific questions about everything that's happening on the factory floor and like which cog like you need to tweak in order to make it better. And you're never going to get those types of good answers from people in the C-suite. They just don't know. And so like what happened here is like you had someone come in and frankly, I don't think Francis knew all of this. She didn't have a job that like basically would have really put her in play with all of the information that she was testifying about today in such an authoritative way. But she has done her research clearly and talked to other people within the company and talked to experts. And so like, even if she doesn't have firsthand knowledge, she clearly is pretty like well-informed and is kind of I mean, I think she falls down a little in kind of some of her legal and regulatory takeaways, but like, who doesn't, honestly? Um, and so that was, it was really, I think it was something like, it was one of the most refreshing, I think, and substantive and uh, just, I, I mean, it's a little bit like 
re it was really like it was very refreshing as someone who's had to sit through a lot of just like you're never you're getting you're trying to get blood from a stone it's not even like blood from a stone it's like trying to get cucumber juice from a tomato like you're just squeezing the wrong vegetable like don't even like I do not know why I picked that metaphor. <laughs> like, welcome to my brain. But like, why are you asking Mark Zuckerberg these questions? He doesn't know. And yeah. so like, this is, this is, that's kind of the takeaway from today. Ben, you're muted. So here's the question. Yeah. Is Facebook allowed to have fun anymore? We're not allowed to have fun anymore. Neither is Facebook, but we are allowed to have Fiona Hill on to talk about there is nothing here for me for you, which is, you know, a, like a really lighthearted title. Which may as well be entitled, <laughs> for, You're Not Allowed to Have Fun Anymore. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that's it was like, it's like something you've internalized or whether that you're like telling that to like everyone else, like, like yeah, I so let's start with the title. Pack that, but I have, I have, I will say that the Washington Post review of it says that like it was a refreshing for it says um, basically that it was um, the rare Trump insider memoir that doesn't obsess over Trump. And I think that that is like all you need to tell me to get me to read your book um, in addition to it having Fiona Hill on the as the as the author byline but yes so welcome back fiona and let's start with the title uh where does it come from well it actually comes from something my dad said to me in 1984 when i was just about to leave high school um this came against the backdrop of the massive layoffs of um, coal miners steel workers you know you name it in the north of england during the thatcher reforms of you know basically Reprivatizing all the commanding heights of industry after you know all the nationalisation after World War Two, and all at once across the northeast of England and many of the parts of the UK, every working man pretty much lost their job. And I say working man because you know there weren't too many women steel workers, um, there weren't too many women miners. Um, I can't really kind of think if there ever were any, but this had a massive knock-on effect in the whole of the region that I was um, growing up in, because you know one way or another every part of the regional economy gravitated around all this heavy industry and you know women who were working you know a lot of them weren't working but always were working in associated jobs as well and so basically i'm leaving high school it's 1984 and there's a 90% youth unemployment crisis in the uk so only 10% of people leaving school have something else to go on to in my case i actually fortunately had um, funding to go to university in st andrews in scotland and some of my friends had some apprenticeships and, you know, what was left of the manufacturing um, sector. But pretty much everybody else was looking for something. And my dad was just basically saying, look, you know, you've got to get out of here. There's nothing for you here, pet. It's kind of a term of endearment north of England. You're not going to, you know, if you want to make something of yourself, you're not going to do it here. So it was an encouragement both to go to university in search of education, but also very sadly, you know, to go somewhere else. It was kind of a recognition that I was not going to come back to my hometown, my home area ever again, likely. Uh, to be able to work there. So when the Washington Post says this is a book, uh, the rare Trump insider me memoir that is not obsessed with Donald Trump, uh, it's a 400 plus page book. What is it about? Well, it's not, you know, the average kind of, you know, Brookings book, no offense to ourselves, you know, like, a, like my book on Putin, which is you know, filled with dense footnotes. And, you know, it's kind of, as somebody once said, they're very hard to pick up. <laughs> but uh, it's, um, you know, basically the story using a lot of personal stories about how we got to the point 
in the United States of electing Trump in 2016 and, you know, where we go from here. And I use the story of growing up in coal mining town in north of England. My county could be Carbon County in the Lehigh Valley in Pennsylvania, anthracite mining. In fact, lots of people, including my dad, either moved to Pennsylvania or wanted to move to Pennsylvania once the Durham um, coal mines start to close down. So there's a lot of linkages with, you know, that part of um, the U.S. And it's a story I was actually going to ask that. losing their jobs, you know, basically leads to all the, not just the socioeconomic problems, but political grievance. And, you know, how this all sort of converges together. And, and in 2016, not just did we get Trump in the U.S., but we also got the U.K. voting to leave the European Union. And the places that voted to leave a place like my hometown and all the other places outside of London or university towns that had felt left behind. They'd been told by the UK government for years that the EU was the problem. It was because, you know, European immigrants were stealing your jobs in London, you know, with all this migration coming in from Poland and Bulgaria and, you know, you name it. Or they were kind of, you know, basically saying, well, the EU is taking our money. You've got to take back control, take the money back. And basically in the north of England going, all right, then, if you're telling me that the EU is to blame for this, then we're going to vote to leave the EU, which was a big shock for anybody else who'd been watching it from elsewhere. And I also argue in the book that this is what happened in Russia, not that they voted to leave the EU, of course, but in the 1990s, because in the 1990s, the Soviet Union fallen apart in Russia the successor to the Soviet Union, everyone lost their jobs overnight because what was the Soviet Union? It was a massive country of blue-collar workers in smokestack factories, steelworks, shipyards, coal, um, coal mines. The bottom fell out of the Soviet Union, the bottom fell out of the economy, everybody lost their jobs. Fast forward 10 years, they're fed up, they want someone to fix it, and they vote in Vladimir Putin, who's already presented himself as the big saviour. I'm going to fix it, I'm going to make Russia great again. And the UK leaving for the EU, the slogans were all about take back control, essentially make Britain great again, global Britain, who needs the EU? There's a pattern in all of this. They become part of the same phenomenon, even though you know a lot of the features are somewhat different. So this is kind of what the book's about. And how generalizable do you think that point is when you look at you know, Viktor Orban in Hungary or uh, uh, you know, the... Uh, Law and Justice Party in Poland, do you see the same pattern or uh, are those a different set of effects? No, those are very similar patterns. I just couldn't talk about them in the same way without being, you know, Fiona Policy Wonk. (laughs) So, you know, in this case, in the book, I can talk about my personal experience of being in the UK, then in the Soviet Union, watching it fall apart. And of course, then being in the United States since 1989 and seeing the whole thing play out. And, of course, there's the experience of seeing populism at work up close and personal in my time in the Trump administration. You know, we could have written it about Germany as well or France, you know, a little bit different. But the whole Yellow Vest movement in France is a very similar reaction of, you know, the places outside of Paris that have been left behind. Of course, we know in Paris itself, the banlieue, the suburbs, where there's been a lot of immigration, where people have found themselves also left behind from you know, the rest of the kind of economy in uh, in Paris, um, uh, you see the same thing. But alternative for Deutschland, you know, the right-wing party that emerges primarily in the East. Um, our Brookings colleague, Constanze Stelzenmüller, is often saying, look, it's the same in Germany. You know, so I think we could extrapolate from this for a much larger story. I just wanted to tell the tale of the three countries that I knew the best. And also because, of course, in 2016 in the United States, we were, you know, on the 
we were obsessed with did Vladimir Putin elect Donald Trump? And I would say that, you know, the Russians played about in the margins, but they exploited the divisions that were already there. And people in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Ohio, you know, these are the kind of places that voted in Donald Trump, not somebody, you know, sort of sitting in St. Petersburg and trying to manipulate Facebook, getting back to the Facebook discussion. Although that did play a role, obviously, in shaping opinion. So we had Tom Nichols on a couple of weeks, days ago. Yeah, um, I need to read about- Tom's book, by the way. Because yeah, I, I was going to say. A lot of people are saying, you know, I was busy writing my own and I was a bit worried that if I start reading other people's books, I'd be you know, kind of forgetting the story I wanted to tell. But it sounds like it was a very similar point, right? Yeah, I was just going to say that. I, I was going to say that it, like this is kind of surprising me that I'm kind of seeing some of the similarities and kind of what you're talking about. I think he has a different normative takeaway, perhaps, than you do. Yes, he's much less sympathetic. Yes, he's not um, sympathetic. He, he's he's quite angry and frustrated at uh, a, and kind of reverses some of the causational polarities that hmm. you're describing. But there's some similar analysis as so, well. So how does he reverse that? Because maybe this would make a you know a good point of discussion here. Of course, you know, sometimes I'll have to talk to Tom as well. <laughs> well, I mean, let me first really quickly, yeah, Ben, just say like ahead. what I think is similar. And you, maybe you'll like, you can confirm this or kind of put some nuance yeah. on it. So when you're like giving this description, you're both describing something that is, of course, just like simply true. And it's not because of any administration or because of any one thing. It is because like there are just some industries that are dying and have died mm-hmm. and have make sense for them to move. Globalization has happened. Like the world has moved on from like, you know, fabric being made in like Western Massachusetts and coal being mined in Western Pennsylvania and, you know, cars being made in Western Michigan. Why are these all Western anyways? But like, there's just like this, (laughs) there's like, yeah, I know. Uh, Well, yeah, but like the Western parts of all the states anyways, but there's like, but my point is, is that basically like the, the point is, is that these have moved on. There is this futile, like I think Tom would say whiny grass grasping to hold on to a life and uh, like well, a it's way of life. grasping when you have no job and no prospect of another job. So, well, 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 no, and but but I think he would say that it is yeah. like he would say move on, find something else to do, or like there's no place for you here, go somewhere else, and I can I, go somewhere else. Yes, and so I actually think that this is also deeply tied to another guest we had on, um, Allegra Love, who works with like migrants around the border, and like the conversation we had around like people do not move unless they really, really have to, and it is hard and difficult to move uh, across borders. And if and move they generally. can, yeah, cases as well, and if they can. So the essence of the book is also about you know I'm sorry to kind of interrupt there because you know I get that you know kind of right away, and you know in the 1980s under the Thatcher reforms, one of Thatcher's ministers, Norman Tebbit, said, get on your bike and look for work. Well, how far can you cycle? So my dad did do that. All of his coal mines closed down. Then he got on his bike and he rode to a steelworks. Then that closed down. So he rode to a brickworks. Then that closed down. And then eventually he found a job, which he did cycle to every single bloody day, back and forth, until his bike got stolen. Then he had to walk. And this sounds like some Monty Python skit, but unfortunately, no, it sounds really sad. Life. And no, he then became rough. a porter in a hospital because he did not have any other skills. My dad left school at fourteen because that was what you were encouraged to do. He's very smart. He was self-educated, but he did not have any skills and qualifications to find another job. 
And that's a lot of the problem that we see in many of those towns. And if you're in the United States, you're going to walk from Michigan, you know, to kind of find a job in New York. There, no, 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 there's you no know, cycling. So this is kind of like, you know, part of the problem. And I actually studied this in the Soviet context in Eastern Europe. And one of the ideas when everybody lost their job in the Soviet Union or in Eastern Europe was there was supposed to be some social funds to help them get themselves retrained or acclimatized to another job. And that didn't happen either. So you had similarly, you have, you know, even people who'd been working at the highest end in, you know, um, Russian military industrial complexes who were chief scientists. The, the place closes down, they lose their jobs. They're selling cigarettes on the streets in Russia. I've seen them that. Or they're coming to the United States and they're working as custodians in buildings in New York. I mean, there's you know, countless stories York, of people with PhDs. Nuclear yeah. engineers, you know, you'll find the parents of my, you know, friends in Russia who happen to be Jewish so they could actually emigrate, you know, which is but they end up in jobs like, you know, driving a taxi or being a custodian in a building because they have to, you know, kind of retool in a whole new environment and their qualifications, even high qualifications are not immediately transferable. But if you've got no qualification, you live in a house that was tied to a coal mine and a steelworks. Where's your money going to come from to move? And in the north of England, when I was a kid growing up, when people did try to move to London to find work, they had no networks there because they didn't know anyone there. All the networks were multi-generational in the same place. And they often ended up living on the streets of London, which became a vicious circle in trying to find a job. I mean, you know, it was kind of a, a real problem. Now, I found it easy. Why? Because I got a scholarship to go to university. I got it all paid for, including my train trip there. I had a hall of residence set up for me, somewhere to live, and I got a whole ready-made set of contacts within the university. And when I got a scholarship to Harvard, it was the same thing. And in that kind of period, a lot of my relatives emigrated to Australia, or they came to Canada, or sometimes they came to work in coal mines here in the US. And in those cases, they often had their way paid, and it was help them find a job and help them to find housing. It was easier to emigrate than it was to find a job in, your, you know, in their own country because they had no contacts somewhere else in the rest of the country. And I write in the book about it was easier for people in Warsaw, Poland, than Walsall in the north of England to find a job in London at different points in the UK. And that's why you had all that backlash. And sure. it's the same in the US, you know, people don't have the ability to move anymore. Gas isn't so cheap. The housing market all fell apart in 2008, 2009. And, you know, they don't know anyone. You know, you don't know anyone in Michigan, you know, kind of perhaps in New York, you know, to help you find a job. So I'm interested in your cross-cultural take on the nature of the political backlash that this produces. Hmm. I can totally see the argument intuitively that, hey, you take away people's jobs in mass, their support men at work, um doesn't know how to respond to this. There's not, it's not obvious for them that they can go anywhere. There are no opportunities. It's gonna produce a political backlash. But you would think, or at least I would think, that in the North of England and uh, uh, where the, which has a politically traditional answer to that, which is, you know, leftist trade unionism, uh, of a Labour Party socialist variety, that the response to a Thatcherite shock would have been over the long term that. And you might have predicted that 
the response in Russia would have been uh, a certain amount of nostalgia for the uh, Soviet Union rather than for uh, a sort of rapacious capitalist or sort of quasi-capitalist uh, nationalism of a Putin variety. And it is not obvious in the United States why the uh, why the the communities that you're describing find a, a Trump attractive, given that he's actually promising very little that would be uh, responsive to the problems that you describe. Why do you think it is that communities facing the kinds of shocks that you're uh, offering an account of respond with kind of non-responsive populism rather than, you know, sort of policy focus on the problems that they confront? Well, they do that over time, uh, first of all. They do start looking for policies and then they turn to populism when those policies don't come to fruition. So in the UK, Margaret Thatcher was eventually kicked out by her own party, right? I mean, from an internal coup, and she was replaced by John Major. And then, you know, the Conservative Party fizzled out for a period, and you got Tony Blair and New Labour. And this is where the parallels with the United States become extremely interesting. Because New Labour, you know, does actually a lot for opening up education, um, but it moves away from the trade unions. And it starts to look more like the Democratic Party in the United States, where it becomes the party of intellectuals, kids from public schools, and you know, meaning you know, kind of private schools. Um, it, it becomes actually completely dominated by cliques of people who've gone to Oxford University and done politic, politics, philosophy, and economics, and it loses its working class base. So under Tony Blair, new Labour becomes very new, and it goes moves away from old Labour, which is the Labour of the. Um, uh, the unions, which have been, you know, had their backs broken by Margaret Thatcher. And the unions weren't all about collective bargaining. And they weren't all about, you know, kind of taking people on industrial action. Miners dues, for example, the Durham Miners Association, which was part of the National Union of Miners, paid for me for my education as a kid of a former miner. And it was just small amounts of money dues. They paid for all the community things. They paid for football, soccer clubs, you know, people going down the local working men's pub. They had all these kind of welfare, they were called welfare societies that they set up. You could, you know, have reading circles and improving literacy. You could become a painter. George Orwell was a member of a lot of these. You know, I remember George Orwell, you know, writing about the road to Wigan Pier. Wigan never had a pier. But it was all about him, you know, basically being there with the coal miners and writing about this vibrant life they had that was paid for by their Jews. And when Thatcher removed all of that, you know, all those communities fell apart and all the self-help, mutual help mechanisms so there was no love lost with her. But Labour Party moved away from those kind of grassroots workers and basically becomes the party of the intellectuals. We see the same thing in the Democratic Party, which make, means that people lose their connections because it's much more difficult for somebody who comes from, you know, kind of a working class background that might start off in local politics to move into national politics in both of those parties. In Russia, in the 1990s, you had all of these liberal parties, you know, so-called liberal parties that come up with all these policies, but they also come up with shock therapy, which is the, you know, whole point about you've got to, you know, have a nasty shock to the system and, you know, you kind of got to lose all of your jobs. You know, the Russians have all of these expressions that, you know, essentially come out to be you've got to break a lot of eggs to make an omelette, but it's the same kind of idea. Sorry, guys, you know, you're going to have no job, but we'll get it fixed really quickly and that doesn't happen. 
And Putin is very interesting because, you know, Putin is a populist, but Putin is also a social democratic po populist. He he's kind a populist of, with tigers. And he's got populist with money. And he kind of basically... Well, that was my point, if you can exactly buy tigers. Thing, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, now, fast forward to Trump. Trump's saying, oh, look at all these Democrats and, you know, the congressional Republicans they haven't done anything for you, but I will do it for you. I'm a billionaire. I know how to make jobs. I will make sure that you all have money. What does he do? Of course he doesn't. He makes sure that his friends have money. He makes sure that all of his cronies, you know, have a job. And we all know that he, you know, actually tried to make money off the presidency for Trump Enterprises. So the mistake is that people voted for him thinking that he would fix it and think that he would, you know, perhaps do what Putin did, which is bring money to ordinary people. In um, Russia, Putin, you know, and the, uh, in the, that first um, 10 years of his presidencies, they reduced taxes, income taxes. They taxed the oil and gas sector. They have the oligarchs who, of course, are enriching themselves, go out and do these, you know, big public works. And people's lives appreciately, uh, you know, kind of improve appreciatedly. In the UK, some people's lives uh, improve. But in the places where I'm from, 50 odd years, not much. And so eventually they get fed up and they get fed up of the Labour Party, like the Democratic Party in the US, sending, you know, fancy pants, you know, kind of people with, let's say, you know, an Oxford degree or Harvard degree to be their local MP who has no tie to the to the region and always just wants to play, you know, kind of politics back in uh, the capital in Westminster. And so they kick the bums out. And you also see populist parties like UKIP, the UK Independence Party, alt-right, you know, kind of far-right British, you know, national parties and others also get traction in the same way and also in Russia. And the communists are still alive and kicking in Russia. In fact, in the recent um, Duma, the parliamentary elections, the communists, you know, got almost second place in the voting because people are still pissed and would like, you know, a little bit more um, attention paid to, you know, their well-being. It's all about who has results. So let's let's talk about that for for a second. And I, and I want to say that that like I am so compelled by this kind of beautiful comparative like history and stories that you're telling. I, I am like you have sold me like I am seeing all of these comparisons and kind of like, no, like, I mean, I actually I mean, not I mean, but you just tell it really well. And I think that your personal experience and the way you talk about it brings me in in a much different way than like reading about each of these histories would kind of do that. So, it, you know, I'm I'm really looking forward to reading this. But like, so one thing that I'm really struggled with Trump and John, Boris Johnson and and Putin and the and the narrative that you just told, the the narrative that these that these that those men all alike in a lot of ways, the the like the just their their boorishness, their kind of uh their their like their new money ostentatiousness, like their and so much of it, uh, kind of like this whole um and the appeal that this had to like which was, you know, to the working out of work, working class people, which seems in some ways as it would be kind of slightly antagonistic to it, right? These people have tons of money, but what like, what is it about them that appeals to this lower class? And it's like, I think you're saying what it is as results, but you don't have that, right? When you well, that, elect someone for the first exactly time, the problem, right? Yes. Yeah. And, and so like, what is it like, so, like, I think that there's, like, one missing link here, and I kind of would love it if you could, like, conjecture or if you have a theory. Like, what? Like, there is something slightly idiosyncratic about um, uh, clowns, 
like Putin and and non-intellectuals like Putin and Johnson and Trump coming into and having all this and that they always have so much money. Right. And like that, like the the key, like the cachet that that gives them for an election. And I've always seen it as like I, I personally think that it is something that like people like I, I also my parent, my my mom's entire mom's family is like blue collar working class truck drivers. So like that kind of background. Um, and they loved Trump. And there was this feeling I always thought that they saw that he, at least in America, that like they could become him. Like that's that the like, thing though. You've just put your finger on it. So for Trump, okay. he's like the ultimate American dream, right? I mean, he tells his stories if he made his money from nowhere. Well, actually, Dad left you a lot of money. It's his dad, in, you know, who made all that money in Queens. But you know, Trump talks the talk of the blue collar working class from Queens on the construction sites, but he's never walked the walk. But that's kind of what he pretends he has, and he tells he sells everybody. He's a salesman. He sells everyone's story. You too could have the gold-plated toilet, the beautiful wife or the beautiful husband, if you want, or many one of them. You, you know, too could have your own family firm and be your own manager and, you know, stuff everyone else, you know, kind of. It's a big, a big stiff middle finger to the, you know, the whole world. You too can do this. I mean, why do people play the lottery? Or why do, you know, kind of people gamble and, you know, kind of hope that they'll make it rich? That's what Trump is selling. It's what he sold on reality TV. It's what he sells lifestyles of the rich and famous through his hotels. Putin's selling something else, and also he's taking everybody else's money. Putin wasn't rich when he um, started on his political career, but he was rich because of it. We've Alex Navalny and the Pandora Papers and the Panama Papers to thank for now. You know, we know how much you know he at least, in theory, you know, can. Um, have a claim to it. Certainly billions stashed away in mistresses and extra children and, you know, you name it. And so, you know, Putin has enlarged his coffers and is living large as a result, but he has improved the lives of the average Russian over the period of time since 2000 and a lot of his friends and cronies as well. And a lot of people are arguably living better until they're not, right? Because over a period of time, that predatory economic practice, a corrupt kleptocratic you know, clique of cronies, I love saying that, you know, basically, eventually will bring your economy down if, if it's not growing. And that's kind of starting to happen in Russia. UK is somewhat different. First of all, Boris Johnson actually is an intellectual. He just pretends not to be one. He's playing the clown. He's very clever. He's another of the Oxford, you know, uh, crew. We went to Eton, you know, the most fabulous um, school in the UK. He was a classmate of David Cameron, the previous. I mean, there's hardly anybody in the British system who hasn't gone to bloody Eton and Oxford. Sorry, I'm sounding bitter here. You know, and then gone on to PPE and then been a prime minister. You know, uh, so, you know, it's um, it's difficult to kind of pull out. Uh, the only, you know, two women who've been prime ministers, um, you know, also from the same, you know, set, even if they came from different kind of backgrounds. Boris Johnson is not really the true strongman populist he's playing it being the populist because that populist politics became very important in his ascendancy the the correlate of trump as i say in the book is actually nigel farage that a lot of americans don't mm, even know yes. because he would have loved to be trump and be the wildcard candidate and get you know propelled to the top of the system it just doesn't work like that in the uk and party politics but as we know now from all of these recent revelations plenty of people in the uk have got quick um riches through the same way. But what Boris Johnson is promising people is you voted for the party in power, now I'm going to give you something. So Boris Johnson has this levelling up agenda. 
He's hmm. broken through the red wall, the same as Trump, you know, claimed to break down the blue wall. And Boris Johnson is actually much more serious than Trump was. I mean, Trump wanted to build a wall as well, a different wall, and he wanted money towards that. Trump hasn't been very serious about giving people, you know, the kind of welfare, well-being packages that they were looking for. He's He did create a lot of small jobs, but he hasn't really kind of done enough or did not do enough to kind of make people's lives materially better in a way that guaranteed that material uh, success, gave them protections in their jobs. Um, Boris Johnson is saying he's going to, this levelling up agenda they're talking about, so we have to see if he's actually going to do it. So Boris Johnson is kind of interesting. He's a little bit more like Putin in this social democratic perspective. He's actually, you know, way left of where you might expect him to be as a conservative. He sounds like Bernie Sanders when you kind of hear him, you know, uh, talking on about what he's going to do. But he's still playing the populist politics. It's just a very different approach. But you have put your finger on it right away. Trump was attractive because he's selling people on the idea that they can do what he did. So talk about the experience of uh, watching these three movements and then finding yourself in the White House under President Trump. Uh, you, you came there for very particular Russia expertise, uh, not, out of, uh, not out of particular political affinity, but I, I, it must have been a very strange experience to have uh, grown up in the north of England, gone to Russia, and then come here and watched all these movements develop as you did and then find yourself working for them. Yeah, I mean, look, I actually thought most people, you know, were kind of making the connections as well. So, I mean, that's actually what propelled me to write the book, because I kept saying, can't people see this? You know, the very first time I went to the Soviet Union in 1987, it was like my hometown on steroids. I was like, yeah, this is the great superpower, you know, kind of, I spent most of my time panicking about being blown up in a nuclear war, and I get there, and it's like, this is just a giant Bishop Auckland, my hometown. You know, people are in trouble. This is clearly not going well. And then I get to the US in 1989. Of course, admittedly, I'm you know going to Harvard for graduate school. But all I do is step outside of the walls of you know the Harvard Yard and you know walk up the street to you know Somerville or you know East Cambridge, and I'm like, whoa, it's Bishop Auckland again. You know, because at that point, all the car factories, the brickworks, the meatpacking plants are all closing down in Cambridge, Mass, and across Boston, and people are losing their jobs. And the and zoning in Somerville is crazy. Yeah, yeah. those single-family homes. It was called yeah. Somerville by the graduate students, which was pretty mean, you know, but I was, I was kind of like where I came from. And, you know, I lived in one of those triple-deckers for a while, and, you know, I kind of saw the same thing happening. But, you know, when it came to Trump in 2016, it was kind of obvious to me why he got elected. Of course, there's a lot of very rich people who've also voted for him because they didn't want to pay taxes and you know, thought he was going to do well by them, which, of course, he has. I mean, look at the latest information from the Forbes billionaire list and the trillions that, you know, the billionaires have made, you know, largely from under Trump when the stock market, you know, did absolutely take off. You know, and in the Soviet Union, it was kind of obvious where, you know, to me anyway, where all of these things uh, were going. But, you know, I end up in the Trump administration because I'm worried about Russia and its public service, because I'd served previously as the National Intelligence Officer for Russia and Eurasia at the National Intelligence Council under first Bush and then Obama as a, you know, very much a non-political, non-partisan appointee. And I'd become very worried then um, about what was going on in our assessment of Russia. And of course, when I came out of that job, I then wrote the book about Putin. 
And in doing all this extra research on Putin, I also became, you know, very aware of, you know, kind of the risks that he posed in his whole style of governance. I don't want so much you were Putin and Navalny were coming in there by, you know, kind of like, No, no, don't worry. This is we should have yeah. warned her a little bit. No, we yeah, have we, we, coming we, in, it forces like, us to pop exactly, them up. And, the first person who came in actually had that look of Navalny. So always beaming in from prison, you know, somewhere. He's watching. So, yeah. I, <laughs> and um, you know, this is the um uh you know this 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 whole point that you know I went in there worrying about and, and being very much driven by trying to do something about what the Russians have been doing, the influence operation, and worrying about them exploiting our vulnerabilities. And then when I got in there, I was I was a bit naive, honestly, about the domestic US politics. And I was so shocked by how dirty the politics was, how much the White House was resembling the Kremlin, that, you know, that gave me that moment for pause. And it was, you know, after I testified at the impeachment trial where I thought to myself, I've got to write this book. This has all been mulling around in my head. I've been seeing all of these parallels I understand this from my own personal experience. I've got to lay it all out there because this is going to keep on happening. And as I basically say in the book, you know, 2016 to 2020, and I mean, Ben, you know, you've been writing about this with Susan, about the whole destruction of the presidency. This could look like a preface to what happens next because Trump was and is incompetent. Putin is not incompetent. And Boris Johnson is more competent than he lets on because he's trying to, you know, basically get people to, as George Bush said, misunderestimate him he is as you know cunning as he possibly could be and but Trump, Boris you know, Johnson is a smart oh, guy he's smart actually guy. not he's that not to be he's pretending not he's, to be but you know this is kind of guy who this is kind of guy who intentionally falls into the Thames to to yeah uh, of course he does or dangles from a this is all just a, a or shtick doesn't cut his hair well, because otherwise he would alienate with his very posh voice the working classes in the UK because he does not talk like them. And they just say, well, he's a posh, you know, some kind of expletive, isn't he? But he's actually coming across as very funny, he's very engaging, and he's kind of pulling them all in. So the danger that we are in now is we've got these charismatic personalities out there. They've short-circuited democracy because it's all about them. And people, you know, up until now, have been buying what they've been selling. And with Trump, he's selling nothing but himself. There's no ideology. He's not yeah. a conservative. He's not a Republican. He's just saying, I'm selling you my gold-plated toilet. So I want I mean, I think... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Kate. Well, I was just going to make a joke about how I think that the, I've watched a lot of Ted Lasso. And I think that the term that you're looking for for Boris Johnson with his, his accent is a posh wanker. That's yes, like, I did I do it right? <laughs> yeah, that was the word that was going on. I'm sure he's so, really nice in person, but you know, that's what people would normally think. So I am, uh, I would be remiss uh, as in my other role, uh, the uh, editor of Lawfare, if I didn't ask you this question. Um, the, the, you were in the White House at the time that the uh, that the that Trump and his presidency were sort of consumed by the Russia a set of scandals, uh, and I'm and you've described here a a kind of common set of circumstances, one much more extreme that animate. Uh, that brought him and Putin to power. He very famously had a bit of a 
I don't know, a crush or, a, you know, a, a admiration for Putin. And of course, there was always a, a lot of suggestion and to a great degree, the Mueller report uh, validates the suggestion that there were a great deal of contacts between his campaign and and uh, Russian actors. So how do you put it all together in your own mind? Was was uh, is this an example of essentially concurrent evolution combined with a uh, a kind of intellectual crush? Is it uh, uh, an example of Putin seeing himself or something in Trump and investing in him. How, like, how do you put the, the various components of this story together in the relationship between those two people or the, the, the Russians more broadly and Trump over the period of his campaign and his presidency? Right. Well, well, first of all, you know, I, I spend a lot of time you know, since 1984, studying the Soviet Union and, you know, kind of many years looking at Putin. <laughs> since 2020, I started working with our Brookings colleague Cliff Gaddy on Putin and 2020 when he comes into power. And we wrote a lot of early articles about the higher police, you know, the KGB, you know, the way that shit Putin. So first of all, Putin looks for anything and anybody that he can manipulate. It doesn't have to be blackmail. You know, it can actually be all kinds of vulnerabilities that you can use. There's a famous episode with Angela Merkel, who's you know also just as famously very difficult to manipulate and intimidate, when Putin finds out that she's scared of dogs because she was bitten by a dog. And so Putin, in their very first meeting, allows his dog, a black Labrador, not one that he bought for the occasion, but you know, pretty big black Labrador, to basically walk in and sniff around the Chancellor's feet as they're supposed to be having a formal meeting, and then watches how she'll react. Oh, screw that. Really? I never exactly. heard that. That's yeah. That is such that a... Is a true story. You know, so this is how the guy operates, right? So, like, let's think about, you know, someone like Trump. Visited, you know, Moscow. Everybody knows he wants to build a tower there, like he has in Istanbul in Turkey. Let's just say Erdogan manipulates the guy as well for the same reasons. Incredibly vulnerable, um, you know, kind of to all kinds of susceptibility to beautiful women. Um, you know, has a very fragile ego. You can try all kinds of things. You can do flattery. You don't have to do blackmail. And, you know, kind of Trump is quick to be insulted. Putin never insulted him, not once. He's always flattering him because that flattery gets you everywhere with, with Donald Trump. We all have, you know, as much dirt on Trump now as I think, you know, that Vladimir Putin may or may not have had. And also what we saw in 2016, it's all about Trump. And this is the big flaw of the Mueller report because they should have looked at what they were doing across the board. I know for a fact, for a fact, seeing some of it with my own eyes, that the Russians, the same kind of Russians, were going after trying to infiltrate Hillary Clinton's campaign, Mark Rubio's, Jeb Bush's. Those are the three that I know for a fact. I was trying to attract people's attention for this, sitting where I was at Brookings, it was quite easy to see this. People would come to me, Russians, you know, to try to get invitations to events so that could meet people you know, to try to make all those connections because Brookings had connections with all those people. So we didn't look at what they were trying to do. What Putin will do is look for a, a useful asset, sometimes also known as useful idiots. And there are a lot of them out there. And in the 1970s, when Putin joined the KGB and he was assigned to, you know, KGB um, operative work in Leningrad, that was their bread and butter, catching business people in sting operations. 
catching them with prostitutes, catching them exchanging money on the black market, anything that they could do to basically have information on them. Every single person, all of you listening out there, if you've ever been to Moscow, don't worry, they've got you on tape. So there may be tips, there may be not tips. It doesn't really matter because you can be sure that they've got you under constant surveillance at all times. So there's always something to use. So sometimes it's just the, the fear of, Ooh, you know, shit, what did I do there? Did I do something? For women, it's actually a lot easier because most of the time we didn't do any of the kinds of things that men might have done, you know, when they see a beautiful woman approaching them in, you know, a bar in Moscow and suddenly think, oh, they're interested in me. No, they're not interested in you. They're just basically trying to set you up for a sting operation. So, yes. That's okay. called a honeypot. The honeypot, <laughs> and I mean, this is just standard fare. So I would just say, look at it in a much larger context. Trump was an incredible counterintelligence risk because he was uniquely vulnerable to flattery. He had an incredibly fragile ego. Everybody knew he wanted to build Trump Towers in Moscow. I mean, I don't talk about that quite so much, you know, kind of in the book because other people have covered all of this. And Putin just found ways of pushing his buttons and pushing all of our buttons. And so we spent you know, four years basically saying, oh my God, he's the Moscow candidate. He obviously wasn't the Manchurian candidate because he's on a tear about China, but he loved Xi. The point is he loved Putin. Like you said, Ben, he had a bromance. For him, Putin was the ultimate badass. That was what he wanted to be. He wanted to be somebody who could say, I'm going to stay in power till 2036. He said it. He tried it. He wanted to be the person who could, you know, have his mistresses, his wives, ex-wives, all of his multiple children having villas in Monaco or palaces over here. We know, he talked about it. So the point is that Putin, and I say this in the book, you know, was among the most powerful, you know, the most autocratic, the most rich, the most famous celebrities on the planet. It's all about celebrity. And that's kind of what attracted Trump to Putin. He wanted to be seen in Putin's presence. He also, by the way, was fascinated with the queen. And I tell a few stories in the book about what I observed, you know, kind of with his just eagerness to get himself into Buckingham Palace and the family, rather than really having a proper state visit with the United Kingdom. It was all about the Queen and being in Buckingham Palace. So you've got to put it in context here. It's often not what we're looking for that is the most relevant. Polyesny Durak. That's right. The useful, the useful idiot. Or an asset. And an asset doesn't mean you're running them. It just means that you know how to use them. Or that there is they may not even know that you're that they may be uh they may be uh, uh useful without even knowing they're doing stuff because yeah, they're oblivious to it because they don't yeah, want that's to the whole idea obliviousness so, right alexei navalny uh, yeah he does look like alexei the first navalny. question hey alexei how are you doing you know sorry i mean that's kind of, it's just when you you know first came on i thought really well, they're going to make a don't say that, Fiona, because now they're going to make a deep fake of it and use it against you in Russia. <laughs> um, so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how your professional training and in history informed um, your experiences in the National Security Council. Well, you know, it actually did play, you know, a large role in shaping thinking. I mean, it also helped me myself understand what my own experience is like in a certain context. You know, I, I feel like I was kind of a living data point of both downward and upward mobility. You know, the rise and fall of the coal industry in the United Kingdom, for example, which is you know, people have written boring social history books about, which I find it quite interesting. But anyway, but in the context of, you know, in the US, here we have Trump, who is, you know, without a doubt, a historic figure, right? The damage that he's done to the presidency, the democracy, 
but trying to understand you know, what he's come out of, the history of populism, the history of other countries uh, in which they found themselves in the same kind of predicament. You know, we spent a lot of time thinking over the years of America's being quite exceptional, but in fact, historically, we're not so much. And, you know, every country has had its periods and episodes of flawed leadership. And Putin is a man of his times in Russia, and that's kind of the book that I wrote about Putin, which was, you know, very much informed by history and the uh, history of Russia, you know, where there are always tendencies, uh, tendency to have the autocrat, the single person on top. Boris Johnson's, you know, very much a kind of historical type as well, not just, you know, kind of coming out of a schooling system that's deeply rooted in the 18th century. And Trump is a product of this time and place. He's not the cause. He's, you know, basically the symptom. And he's also a product of the history of the presidency. I mean, I really benefited from Ben's book, and, you know, kind of thinking about the institutions and how we've become to fetishize the presidency. I mean, a lot of people have said to me, how did you come to serve Trump? I wasn't serving Trump, I was serving the country. I took an oath to the Constitution. The preamble to the Constitution begins with we, the people of the United States. There's nothing in there about the supremacy of one man and one president. Everything has been evolving over, over time. And the checks and balances around the presidency have been eroded. And I mean, Ben, you know, you wrote about that, you know, kind of in your uh, most recent book. So it's that the history of the evolution of the presidency really helps to explain how, you know, Trump really managed to do what he did. And the breakdown in the history of the um, of the two you know, political parties in the United States as well. So I think history has been a very important guide you know, for me. It doesn't necessarily repeat. Sometimes it doesn't even rhyme, but it certainly informs you. Concerned citizen, you have a pair of questions. They're both good. Uh, I'm going to leave you on for both of them, but state them briefly, please. Okay, thank you, Dr. Hill. Thank you for your service. I haven't had a chance to read the book yet. I think it may have been released this week. I was able to preview the table of contents and the index on amazon.com. It looks really interesting and the index makes it look like you spend a number of pages saying that uh, Donald Trump attempted a coup. Um, Many Americans are not on the same page about that. I was wondering how you would summarize your argument that Trump attempted a coup. Yeah, look, and I can um, appreciate that people are not on the same page. That, By the way, the book just came out today. I did write about this in an article in Politico in January, which lays out some of uh, the same points. So it's not a coup in the conventional sense that we would think of in which, you know, you basically have an armed um, insurrection by the military, you know, by taking command of the military. I mean, we tend to think of coups as being, you know, Colonel Gaddafi in Libya or, you know, all the kinds of, you know, coups in Latin and South America that we've, you know, kind of seen, you know, around the world or in Africa, kind of a, you know, someplace like Bolivia there seemed to be a coup every five minutes, you know, with kind of the, the military or, you know, different groupings. But this is what, um, you know, kind of uh, is known as a self-coup. And there have been some other examples of it. One is Nicolas Maduro, most recently in Venezuela, who refused to accept the outcome of uh, the election that would have had him out of office and had um, uh, Guaido and you know other groups um, come into power in Venezuela. And the other one is Louis Napoleon, who um, you know refused in France in the 1860s to leave office and then declared himself emperor. And you know basically what you see in the calm of self coup is somebody who just refuses to leave office and refuses to accept the outcome of the election. 
Now, why didn't this coup work? Because Trump is still refused to accept the outcome of election. He still says he's president, he's going to come back, and he's been telling everyone, you know, the big lie that he won the election in 2020. We, we see it going on all the time, all of the election recounts and all of the accusations and the lawsuits and everything that Trump says every single day, he says, I won this election. And now, why didn't it succeed? Because, you know, many parts of the institutions in the United States, actually individuals within them did stand up. But we know about this memo that was written uh, by Mr. Eastman, right, trying to justify the coup. We know that, you know, within the Department of Justice, there was an awful lot of people who had to resist because um, President Trump was trying to kind of force in his own people who would have basically um, rejected the certification and the validation of the electoral results. And of course, we know he's also putting on pressure on Vice President Pence not to certify. And this Eastman memo lays all of this out. And Pence knew that that wasn't constitutional, and that he did not have the authority to do this. We also know that Bill Barr, uh, the Attorney General, had also said that the, there wasn't you know, um, any evidence of massive election fraud to uh, basically invalidate the election, but Trump kept, up, kept at it, calling up um, you know, various secretaries of state. The military, of course, didn't go along. We now know even more than we knew before about what General Milley and you know, others were trying to do around this time frame. But what did we get? We get the vast majority of members of Congress from the Republican Party basically going along with uh, what Trump said and trying to uh, question the certification of the elections. And if any of those other institutions had gone along again, we'd be basically facing a coup, um, a successful coup. So what I'm saying is here, this was a coup attempt. It was a self-coup. Yes, it was. And, you know, I go into you know, all of these different examples of this. It isn't not a coup because it didn't work. And the fact that you know Trump isn't still in power because it had all the hallmarks, all the elements of an attempted coup. And in other places it did work because the military stood by Maduro. In France, you know, all the institutions, you know, stood be now behind Louis Napoleon, who then, you know, kind of goes on to become uh, the, the emperor. And in the United States, there was a lot of resistance from people even that Trump himself had appointed the Supreme Court, all the judges and others. But what scares me the most is it could easily have worked. And we did have an insurrection. On January 6th, we had a mob that were riled up, if not perhaps, you know, quite so directly instigated, but certainly encouraged to storm the capital. And, you know, what if they had got hold of all the boxes with the votes? I mean, we're in the midst of a constitutional crisis right now, because we have someone who has refused to accept the outcome of the elections. And I do also you know, think that perhaps a lot of this was rooted in what happened in 2016, when many people refused to accept that Trump himself was elected and said that Vladimir Putin had elected him. So I was very critical about that during my testimony, um, you know, if you go back and look. But you know, once we start to call into question the legitimacy of you know, the outcome of an election, you know, by whatever you know, reasons, that's when you start to see you know, it's kind of cascading to, you know, further erosion of our democratic institutions. All right. Uh, quickly, your other question. Thank you. My other question is, how serious of a threat do you think foreign influence campaigns are for Americans? And how should we defend ourselves from foreign influence campaigns? I think they're really serious. And, you know, obviously that was what I was so concerned about in 2016. But what we're seeing is those foreign influence campaigns are exploiting our own divisions. 
So, you know, when the Russians were creating false personas on Facebook and masquerading as Americans, they were picking up on all of the, um, you know, various issues that we're fighting with each other about. So one of the ways in which we have to address this is by trying to figure out how we can, you know, cross the divide ourselves, which is, of course, easier said than done, right? And, you know, part of it is the things that we were talking about at the very beginning of all of this is figuring out how we can regulate Facebook and all the harms that can be done through social media. Because all of these influence campaigns are just, you know, piggybacking on what, you know, people are doing, the disinformation that's being spread at home as well. Because the United States is also producing conspiracy theories, disinformation campaigns, our super PACs, the political action committees with all the money that's, you know, behind them, thanks to the Citizens United, you know, ruling in the Supreme Court, of funding, you know, all kinds of attacks on, you know, from one set of Americans against another. And I said in uh, my testimony that, you know, Vladimir Putin and the security services like a super PAC, a political action committee, they're just doing the same thing. So we have to address this, you know, ourselves as well. So this is not a partisan, you know, um, comment here, but, you know, the more that we have the parties ripping each other apart inside, as well as, you know, dividing ourselves up into red and blue Americans and, you know, never the twain shall meet, the easier it is for a foreign influence campaign to operate. So it's, you know, fixing social media, the regulation of Facebook, but it's also fixing ourselves. And again, easier said than done. We have to, you know, kind of deal with disinformation in the domestic sphere, which I think is legally quite difficult, right, when it gets into free speech and lawfare and, you know, others that we've been talking about this. But we certainly have to go after foreign disinformation. The problem is, you know, like we saw and I saw during impeachment is when foreign disinformation gets picked up for domestic political purposes. And that's when we are acutely vulnerable. Christopher, you get the penultimate question today. I like the Newcastle uh, to Yes, and then Dr. Hill, my question is about, actually about Northeast. So as you said, uh, not a lot has changed uh, um, in investment and development in the Northeast in the last 50 years. Um, in, in fact, uh, the only sort of significant hope uh, for investment in the region right now is tied to Saudi Arabia public investment funds uh, proposed or you know stalled takeover of Newcastle United football club <laughs> um and uh you know but they and the Rubin brothers David and Simon uh won't in, invest in the region un unless the, the football club is 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 sold to them and that's held up um so I'm wondering what what you think uh besides this sort of moonshot mid Middle East investment in the region um what 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 could be done sort of from Westminster and in London and other places to uh in, encourage in, in investment and development in in the northeast like Newcastle and uh county Durham um to to make the northeast and Newcastle more like uh like the Pittsburgh like you, like you mentioned you know Pittsburgh yeah exactly well I mean actually if you look at the U.S. cases with Bethlehem and Pittsburgh they set up these local development corporations and they still had some you know industry and some you know funding that they could find to um, be able to push those ahead and like you said there hasn't been you know a lot of industry and potential for investment in the in the northeast of England, like in the US, apart from through football teams, soccer teams. So what you're going to have to do is, you know, try to kind of figure out how you can unleash local capacity. I think there are a lot of lessons from the US, but a lot of the lessons are you have to have some investment upfront to get things started. 
And what you've seen the UK government do, um, there's a start, you know, they've decided to move, you know, some of the government departments uh, up to the north. The passport office is now in Durham. Uh, when I um, renewed my British passport, I was quite surprised to find I was sending it to Durham <laughs> to get it um, to get it renewed. And it was very efficient. Uh, so it actually showed that that, uh, that could work. But beyond that, you know, you basically have to find a way of stimulating local development. And I talk about a lot of this in the book, and you've got to stimulate local assets. So the levelling up agenda can't just be driven from Westminster, you know, from Whitehall, from London. You have to find a way of empowering local governments to be able to do that. And in the UK, under Margaret Thatcher, there was a hyper-centralisation of governance in the UK. I mean, it's a small place anywhere, but everything was starting to be run out of London because Thatcher was in a battle with all the local uh, councils who you know tended to be labor and you know pretty much implacably opposed to things that she was doing but now you know as there has been a shift in some of the politics it might be time to devolve a bit more authority back to some of the regional governments so they can actually do some things themselves because that's what you see in the us a lot of the driving forces of change have been local development corporations where it's public private um, efforts driven by locally uh, based businesses mayors, you know, governors and people, you know, figuring out how to do it for themselves. You need a bit of that kind of America can-do spirit going back the other way to the UK. Not just selling Newcastle United to the Saudis. Or the Emirates, which I think is where the ones have gone. <laughs> you get the last question today. Uh, hi, Dr. Hill. Thanks for coming on. Um, re really enjoyed your testimony and this book is super interesting. Uh, haven't read it yet. Um, so my question was, um, America has gotten relatively deindustrialized by now, um, and further deindustrialization seems inevitable, uh, except for maybe high tech or low headcount manufacturing, such as semiconductors. So I'm wondering what, like, what are, if you had a crystal ball, what are some up and coming or currently strong U.S. industries that are, you know, ripe for disruption that would cause political and cultural upheaval, like what you've cited for industrialization? Yeah, I mean, obviously, the big um, change ahead is artificial intelligence, right? And we get self-driving everything. And, you know, in the United Kingdom right now, there's this, you know, fascinating fallout from Brexit. Fascinating in sort of that horror of fascination, but obviously entirely predictable of a massive shipping crisis. We're having it here in the US as well. But in the UK, it's a shortage of truck drivers. And, you know, there's a lot of memes going around on the Internet about, you know, kind of training up truck drivers until, of course, they're all taken over by automated um you know kind of machinery lorry and drivers. driving cars exactly truck or lorry drivers exactly and that is kind of you know part of our you know problem ahead that there's going to be continuous changes in the nature of work and our education system hasn't really kept up with that and so i think you know actually we're really going to have to think long and hard and many of our colleagues at bookings and elsewhere about is the future of education and how we keep track with all of these changes in um, manufacturing and the emergence of new industries and give people the ability not to get their skills all at once, to, be, to have continuous reskilling. So my father, this gets back to where we started really, you know, Kate and Ben, where, you know, kind of Tom Nichols, and I'd love to talk to him for a while, you know, move somewhere else. Well, yeah, but what if you don't have the skills, you know? Are you gonna move to get another blue collar job in a place where blue collar jobs are disappearing? Well, that would have been, you know, my dad's um, prospects. You need retain, retraining. My dad was in his 30s. You know, my other members of my family who were much younger coming along later when they lost their jobs in the 80s, they did get retrained and reskilled. And I talk about some of those, you know, examples in the book. They did well and they're constantly retraining. I mean, all of us, you know, right now my sister's just lost her job. 
she was managing um, a whole host of in-person centers for teaching English as a foreign language in Spain. She's now trying to retool, continuous relearning to do all of this online because that's kind of where the all educational you know, learning is probably going to go. There's going to be this mixture of in-person and online. So she's having to retool. She's learning coding. She's going to try to make her own content. I hope she succeeds. This is the kind of point that I'm you know, making here. We all have to be aware that it's very unusual to be able to find a job that you can stay in forever. And you're constantly going to have to refresh your skills. And we've got to make it possible for people to do that. We can't have the new class barrier being in education. And that there can be education for some are not education for others. And that that also becomes a definition of who you are and how you're gonna vote and where you live. So we've really got to bust open our education system. And I do think that there's opportunities to do that. You know, post COVID, we've got to look at this as a possibility for rebuilding, restructuring, a bit like it was in the, you know, after the great recession, you know, after each of the major wars, this is where we are now. This is one of those inflection points. And we've got to kind of figure out how we're going to be able to adapt to, to rapidly changing times and help everybody else adapt. Because otherwise, all we're going to get is more populist politics with people promising things that they can't deliver. Um, I have, I just, I'm, we have to wrap, but I just want to quickly respond. I think that that's brilliant. But I also want to add that one of the things that we need to do is break down cultural stereotypes around certain types of jobs. And Absolutely. I've spent a lot of time actually, like before I wrote about Facebook, I was studying AI and like the future of AI and economies. And one of the things that I really think is key is that we are not going to stop AI from taking jobs that mm -hmm. are very like, that are like, really not high cognition jobs it is unlikely that like there are a lot of emotional support jobs and a lot of kind of um, yeah. human caregiving jobs like elder care that we could invest so much more like people in like elder yeah. care and child care and if men who are like can't mine coal could go and transition to those types of things. And of course they can't because there's just like this really huge rift in like the types of people that work those jobs and the gender roles of them and everything else. But anyways, I just think that that's in this addition is, to education. In fact, yeah. you're absolutely right because in a lot of the old coal and steel uh, communities, the fastest growing sector is in the care economy. Yes. You know, healthcare, elder care, childcare. And I do think, you know, an awful lot of men would be willing to take these jobs. When my dad became hospital porter, every single hospital porter except one in the hospital where he got his job were as an ex-minor. And they, you know, started to take their jobs pretty seriously. You know, and I, I think a lot of, look, they're all- They're incredibly all important nurses. jobs. I mean, when I went to the doctor, you know, the other day for my checkup, my nurse was a man. Why not, you know? I mean, I, men can do just as good a job of caring as, you know, women can. So it's like you said, we need to bust through the stereotypes in the care economy Will be one of the fastest growing sectors because we're all getting older not everyone of course on this call but you know we we can't really stop you know the um you know the the tide of time and like you're saying there are so many different things that we could be thinking about here yeah we are going to leave it there yeah, i'm sorry i didn't Hill. see all the commentary because just think keep things flashing up here so i obviously oh yeah no one keeps track we call them the greek chorus and they're i mean if you followed it it's like the world's nicest most intelligent internet like live internet chat um it is a wonderful group i wish i was part of it i'll have to come back on and you know, <laughs> everyone loved you well. yeah. that's the tldr 
the book is there is nothing here for you well there's nothing for you here there's nothing for you here sorry there's something for you here on this podcast finding opportunity in the 21st century fiona hill you're a great american it's great to see you again um and uh do come back soon kate who do we have tomorrow i don't know We'll no figure it idea. out tomorrow. We'll figure it out tomorrow. Um, we'll figure it out. <laughs> we'll figure it out sometime between now and 22 hours and 53 minutes from now. And until then, Kate? We don't have fun anymore, or we can't have fun anymore, but we do have, uh, you, can, you can still, there is something here for you. For you. You can still, yeah. you can still come here. <laughs> and if you can't you can still come to in lieu of fun and yeah, hang out with said. us yeah that's what i okay I'm, I'm <laughs> oh putting you, an you, emphasis on okay the point. sorry well, thank you for having me you gave me a bit of fun <clears throat> you know uh, yeah. too much fun you know but anyway <laughs> super great to see you uh and we will be